Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest has written a, a series of books with her, uh, her detective, sort of psychologist and investigator, Maisie Dobbs. And the newest one is called Among the Mad. It takes kind of a contemporary theme, the idea of a suicide bomber in a major city. Very cheery story. Uh, but uh, will you please welcome Jacqueline Winspear to West Coast Live. How do you do? Shaky bar stool? <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends. Have you been drinking? Does it feel shaky to you? I don't know. It feels pretty solid to me. Uh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Other than are you settled down there? Yeah, I'm settled down. I think I'm safe. I'm trying not to fall off. Where'd, where'd Maisie Dobbs come from? Uh, when you say where did she come from, I mean, literally, she was born in London. No, no, no. In your imagination? In my imagination. That's a good question. Um, I didn't, when I, Maisie Dobbs came into my life, I wasn't planning to write a, n a novel. I was a non-fiction writer, plus I had the day job and so on. Um, and literally, I was driving to work, stuck in traffic, um, and I did what people sometimes do. I started daydreaming. And literally, this woman sort of walked into my mind's eye, came up through Warren Street tube station in London, only it sort of had the old clunkety-clunkety-clunk wooden escalator and then she came through a turnstile not one of these computer things that try and grab your hand and she was wearing the garb of the mid to late 1920s and she stopped and had a conversation with a newspaper vendor went down warren street and basically as i was sitting there and pretty soon the, there was a guy honking behind me obviously wondering if i was going to sort of move on any particular shade of green that day and um, <laughs> I, I, I pretty much had this chapter in my head i knew it was a book and by the time i got to work you know 45 minutes later, I had this story in my head. And, and I've always referred to that as my moment of artistic grace. But I, I don't think those moments of artistic grace happen in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what, was, what else was going on? When you say it doesn't happen in a vacuum, what else was going on in your, were you, were you longing for London of another time? No, I wasn't longing for London of another time. But I've always had an interest in that era, sort of broadly speaking, from let's say just before the First World War, right up to the end of rationing after the Second World War in Britain. That sort of went on to 1954. But the years of the Great War and indeed the, the sort of the between the wars period has always fascinated me ever since I was a kid. Um, and I think my, and if I, well, I know my curiosity about the war came about as a small child. You know, when I would say, question, ask questions of my, my parents, like, you know, why does granddad, why can't he breathe properly? You know, why does he, you know, that, that rasping of the lungs? Why, why do his legs hurt him so much? And why do I have to be, why do we always have to be really quiet around him? And, um, and the, the, the answer was always the same. Well, he was wounded in the Great War. He was wounded in the Great War, you know. And my question was, well, is that the same war that you were in? No, this was a big, this was a big war. And, and how do you answer those questions to a child? Um, and I know that the word wound really was something that, um, you know, kids pick up on words and the way they are spoken and the way that this w subject was approached was with great gravity and great respect. And there was something about that word wound because if my dad fell off a ladder, for example, he was hurt. When one of the ladies on our street walked up out in front of a car, she was injured. But the word wound seemed to be used for 
something that happened in a time of war. And it seemed, when it was spoken, it was almost as if it touched the very soul of a person. And though I couldn't put that into words then, I was later able to do that. And I, ju just as time went on, I just became more and more curious about that period of time. And, and also, you know, y you can't grow up in, in Britain without being very aware of it. You know, we still, on November the 11th, there is a two-minute silence. You always wear your poppy with, as they say, wear your poppy with pride. And there is a real sense of lest we forget. Um, that I think one writer said, you know, the British are obsessed with World War One. Well, it it was a very big. Uh, it was the advent of great social upheaval in the country, as well as being a, a, a terrible war in terms of. And it and it took most of a generation. Yes, indeed. Uh, that, well, it's the men of the most of a generation. It it didn't. It changed the lives of women dramatically. But if you think of you know about seven hundred and fifty thousand young men. Um, were, were killed, about 1.35 million came home wounded, and you know, 60 to 80,000 listed as profoundly shell-shocked, but that was a greatly massaged number. The, uh, and you make use of, of some of this, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, absorption in that period in, in one of the early scenes in the book when you have the uh, Maisie Dobbs walking down the street, and she seems to have a, another sense of she's able to sort of sense things. She senses a, a dark aura. She senses that a man's about to do something um, harmful to himself, but also sort of notices that she can sort of identify signs where she's able to say, you know, he was he was somebody who was in the war. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the way he was sitting on the ground. That's right. Well, at that time, you know, you would you would see a lot of veterans that were had been wounded in the war that were, you know, literally in the soup kitchens. Um, that, that I mean, it's quite obvious then. I mean, even when I was a kid, I remember seeing veterans of the Great War. Um, but uh, she also, as a, an individual, she is one, one of these people that has, a, let's say, an enhanced intuitive sense. But I think we all have a sense when all is not well. I, you know, that, that you know, there's something wrong. You've been walking down the street and you think there's something not right here. And you might walk across the other side of the road without giving it a second thought. And then you realize, well, you know, a car just went up on the sidewalk there or, or whatever. But that, that's also a very handy technique for a a writer to give a character, mm -hmm. because you can have them act in a certain way or act as kind of a little omniscience, yes. the writer's omniscience too. Indeed, and you know she's she's always had that that facility, if you will, and uh, it's it's one that has been enhanced by her background. You know, not she had a day job when she started out a few novels ago. Um, yes, well, her her day job has been you know as a psychologist and investigator, but before the sort of, if you will, the period of time before the first novel, she was um, apprenticed to her longtime mentor, who was uh, um, a forensic scientist, a psychologist. This was Lady Compton? No, 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 this is Maurice Blanche. Oh, Maurice Blanche, yes. right. Um, Lady Rowan Compton is the, a person that she was, um, she went to work for when she was 13 years old after the death of her mother. And, you know, kids went out to work at that age in, in those days. And it was very quickly realized that you know, she, Maisie Dobbs, was a person of, of, of some intelligence and some promise. And by luck, she ended up in the home of a woman who was uh, uh, a suffragette and something of a social reformer who decided that she was going to put her money where her mouth is, so as, as, as they say. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, one of the, one of the uh, aspects of the, of the uh, mystery novel, in some ways, is that you also have uh, 
an antagonistic relationship, but nevertheless a relationship of some kind between the independent investigator and the established police mm -hmm. officer. Well, I think I think you often have that. You know, they're they're they're, they're on each other's ground and there's one team that thinks they're the official team and someone else who's working for a client invariably although you know in this case there are some other things that come up but um yes there is that antagonism it's just like you know anybody that uh, you know there's the someone has their patch and someone else tries to move into it or they are already there and there's it's bound to come up and you make uh Maisie both uh, uh attractive in many ways but also irritating to the to the established police force uh, she she models the way that uh, the uh, another policeman sits, leans forward when he does, mm -hmm. sits back when when she does, and uh, he he sort of says, "Oh, you're doing exactly what you know, Mr. Blanche always used to do." That's right. That's that's one of her techniques, and uh, I guess we would call it mirroring. Yeah. But uh, it's how she gets a sense of of what people are perhaps really thinking and how they're feeling, um, and uh, it's it's gosh, it's been used by psychologists for years. But uh, that's what she does. And she has a different way of going about things. She thinks very deeply about, uh, about the victim, and uh, not only the victim, but also the perpetrator of a crime, because they're often also a victim. And, and she tr always tries to, if, if you will, put herself in their shoes, get inside their heads, uh, to be able to find them, to be able to find out who, who did this and what the circumstances were. So this is, this is a, a, a quality of empathy that she has. You know, Monsieur Poirot, you know, used his little Grisels and uh, uh, Agatha Christie's, uh, you know, other uh, detective, what was her name? Uh, uh, Miss Marple. Miss Marple, you know, uh, would sort of use sort of human experience, a sort of mm -hmm. basis. Uh, it's a, uh, each, each detective develops their own kind of way of trying to work through a particular case. What, what is your, um, your research library like? I mean, f you know, to, to Im embed yourself in this period. Well, to give you a clue, it's not only in all the, my bookcases, it's all over the floor, <laughs> you know, it's in boxes. Um, obviously, I do a lot of research, and not only research through books, but I do a lot of what uh, marketers will call primary research. I've been to the battlefields of the Somme and Ypres several times, you know, I've walked those battlefields and, and just, you know, closed my eyes and thought, how would it be if? How would I feel if? Um, I do a lot of research at the Imperial War Museum in London, for example, and, you know, you might think, well, what do, what do you do there? Because I'm, I'm not just walking around exhibits, but they have an extraordinary archive in at the museum, um, an archive of letters and journals, um, all of them in boxes marked as to the, with the identity of the, the original writer. And, and not just famous people, ordinary people, ordinary men that were serving overseas or women that were serving overseas in different wars. Um, the collections may be found when someone's passed away and they think, well, I'll give great uncle Edgar's letters to, you know, uh, his wife to the museum. And someone like me comes along and what I'm looking for usually are specific um, let's say, scenarios. So, for example, for one of my books, um, Pardonable Lies, I was really interested in the experiences of young aviators in France in 1917. And so I would, you know, go through the, the computer, pull up these, these boxes, and they would all be sitting on a desk in the, uh, in the reading rooms at the museum. 
And, and just to give you a picture of this, the, the Imperial War Museum is housed in what was once the Bethlehem Lunatic Asylum, which you might have known as Bedlam. That was how it sounded in the local dialect. And the reading rooms are in what was once the chapel. And uh, I think, I think um, Bedlam is a really good place for a museum of war, personally. But uh, that aspect of my research is something I come to with great humility and respect because I realized pretty early on that sometimes I was the first person reading those letters since perhaps the, the initial recipient because, you know, the museum staff don't have time to read every letter that came, comes in. And, and usually it's only the, um, the really famous people that they delve right into. Or so what would you glean from, from this? What would you look for? What well, kind of detail? That's a good question. Um, I'm looking for, and remember a lot of letters were censored, but I'm lo- uh, that for, for example, with this particular aviator, there was um, a journal in there, and it, it described, you know, just daily sorties. And, you know, in between some of the descriptions of, of what they came across and how high they were flying, etc., you know, descriptions of clouds and what they saw below them. And one day, there was, it was really interesting. I was reading some letters, and I'd already gone through a couple of boxes, and I realized that there was one point in the letters where the, the letters actually became quite difficult to read. And I thought, this is interesting, because that's happened on every single one of them. And I went back through, and I realized the point at which it became difficult, more, let's say not as easy to read, was when the, um, the, the, the person, the young man, was le- had left Britain, let's say they were in, uh, f- you know, learning to fly or they were, you know, in, in, in a barracks somewhere, and they were now in France. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I, I, th- I wondered why that was. And I realised, you know, the ink was lighter. Um, it was more difficult to write, obviously, for them. And I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know whether this is the... I came to the correct conclusion. But if you can imagine troops from around the Commonwealth, wealth, so you've got troops from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, India, you know, um, they had Chi- the Chinese there digging trenches early on, um, as well as obviously all the European troops. I'm th- I thought to myself, maybe they had a run on ink and they, they, they watered it down. Perhaps that's what happened. And I suddenly thought, gosh, that, how awful. To, you, maybe you're trying to write that last letter home before you're going up the line. And you know that you've probably... Out of you know five five soldiers, only two will probably come back, and you're trying to write your last letter home, and you can't see the ink because it's going through the paper. I mean, I just sat there and thought about that for for ages. You know, I I confess I don't I don't ever leave that place without I'm I'm it's very emotional, yeah, yeah very emotional. So how do you sort of free yourself from the fascination of the research, and then? apply this to a puzzle of a mystery? That's a good question. I apply what I call the iceberg principle. Um, Because at the end of the day, I mean, I'm a storyteller. It's not narrative, nonfiction. I'm telling a story. Therefore, all the research that I do, all the background, has to, it, it, it has to be used judiciously, like seasoning in soup. And when I say the iceberg principle, I think only about 7% of it should be visible above the surface. Um, the rest of it informs every single word that I write. The choice of a single word to describe something, um, a, a gathering of words to describe something. You know, I, I want them to reflect 
the time if I can. So you you and you know when you're you you just instinctively know I think when you're going over the top. Um, and there's a pun on words, um, but you know I th- World War One pun. Yes, um, and I think that um, sometimes writers it's easy to fall into the trap thinking you know I've done all this work I'm going to use every every last bit of it. And in fact, it's you'll use it anyway. You know, you'll use it. Yeah. And uh, well, you use some of that sort of like uh, when Billy Beale, mm-hmm. one of the sort of the a, a melancholy figure, who's who's Maisie Dobbs' assistant, has heard this initial explosion in the street and is able to identify it uh, as a certain kind of hand grenade mm-hmm. because he was in the war. Mm-hmm. He said, "You, if you fire." you know, half a dozen different rifles, I'd be able to tell you which one is which. Yes. You know, if you hear them all the time, you know them. I know what kind of hand grenade that was. Yes. And, and actually... And the police are suspicious of him because he knows that. He must know something. Yeah. And then, well, uh, in, initially there was one who was suspicious and then he's quickly shut up by the others because they, you know, they're all men who had been to war. Um, but actually Billy Beale is a, an interesting character for me because he's he, he comes over as quite happy-go-lucky at times. You know, he's really of that type, you know, you just get on with it. And, and that's very much, um, I think, a, a British trait that has got everybody through the Boer War to the Blitz. But, you know, you, you just got to get on with it. And But really, he is he is wounded. He is a wounded man who's who has seen terrible things. He doesn't sleep at night. He, like many men, he, he will walk the streets, and they all know who they are. Um, but he's... He's an interesting character for me because he also, you know, we've all met people like this in life or families like this in life. It's as if, gosh, it's one thing after another that happens to them. And, and that's, that's where he is, yes. This uh, book is, is uh, well, not just one thing after another, but another yes. in the series <laughs> of, of her uh, Maisie Dobb novels. Uh, Jacqueline Winspear, the book is called Among the Mad, published by uh, Henry Holt. Henry Holt. Henry Holt. In fact, it's funny you should say that one thing after another. I don't know if anybody here ever saw the, the film or the play The History Boys. Yes, yeah. I saw it. And do you remember that scene when the, the, the lad that has gone to Oxford for his interview and they said asked him something to talk about history and he said, well, it's one thing after another, isn't it? <laughs> Only, I, think he's I think it was one damn thing after another. <laughs> but, but Maybe it was something else. I just signed your contract, though. I can't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> I think damn is all right, I think. You know, I mean, I think that's, that's all right within that. It's not on the uh, forbidden list. So, uh, anyway, um, well, uh, it, it's a wonderful excursion into the, the history and the time and, and uh, going from Fitzroy Square and up Charlotte Street and out to, you know, anarchist meetings in Finchley. It's filled with uh, London of a certain era. It's like, it's like uh, I, was, I was just there over the, you know, when you talked about London going, you know, through the, you know from the Boer Wars through the Blitz, yes. it shut down because of snow last month. I know. Would, would you believe it? Yeah. Would you be, but you know, they, they haven't had a lot of snow for a while, but yeah. uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Where was all the salt? That's what I want to know, because we definitely had snow when I was a kid, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I mean, there were the, the, the England had to import salt from other countries to deal with the snow and the ice in, in the, the northern part of the UK. It was, it was like, you know, we've got 40,000 tons coming on a barge from France. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things I thought about was, you know, those poor trees and grass. I mean, they'll get all this salt in them. I mean, mm-hmm. and salting has been stopped in the Sierra roads in some of them because of, uh, it kills the trees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but they were called gritters who put it out. Uh, yes, it was a British word. The gritters. Well, they mix it with grit, and they have these big machines that go along gritting the roads. And they were out of grit, too. No grit. grit, no salt, just pepper and garlic. That's all they had. Actually, I remember seeing that headline. It said, the British out of grit, and I thought, oh, it's come to something now when the British are out of grit. <laughs> Jacqueline Winspear, thank you very much for being on. Let's go. The books are filled with grit. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.